Hey, this is uh, Politics and Science, and I'm your host, John Barkhausen, and this is the special extended uh, interview uh, with Ray Pete done on the 4th of March, 2015, uh, with Ray from the studios of WMRW, and the subject was evolution and Lamarck, although that hardly gets mentioned. Anyway, uh, just a few things about the show. Uh, we had, uh, I had some technical problems, so, uh, I think there's some distortion throughout. Uh, Ray was recorded at too hot, too high a volume, and, uh, I apologize for that. Anyway, for what it's worth, here's, uh, the interview with Ray Pete, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Let's try it again. Okay. Um, but now you have the echo. Uh, no, I don't think there's an echo. There's a, well, a, a faint echo, but a, a slight hum. Okay, well, if you can live with it. Yeah, the hum isn't bad. Okay. All right, so uh, Ray Pete, as I said, it's, I guess nobody heard this, is a, a uh, has a Ph.D. in a biology and is a special speciality in physiology. And if you wouldn't mind, Ray, maybe you could introduce yourself a little more. Okay, um, my dissertation was on reproductive physiology, uh, female uh, aging influence on the oxidative uh, processes in the uterus, actually. Uh, but I went to um, graduate school in biology uh, after having um, studied literature and linguistics previously uh, with the intention of studying the brain and how the brain uh, can uh, create language, uh, but uh, because the uh, brain biology people were uh, the most dogmatic next to the genetics people, uh, I looked around and found that the reproductive physiology professor uh, was actually a scientist, uh, so I did my work in that area. I see. And you've been interested in science your whole life. Uh, it's fairly impressive that as a child you were uh, reading many scientific texts. Um, and when did you first uh, run into the subject of the origin of life and evolution, which is what we'll be talking about today? Oh, um, we had a, a little old uh, Funken Wagnalls encyclopedia from a uh, my parents got it around 1930, I think, and that was where I first ran into uh, some of the really interesting science things when I was seven or eight or nine years old. And uh, uh, then, at 1950, we we got the new uh, Britannica, uh, which had uh, bigger articles, but uh, both of them were very objective on the the issue of uh, uh, Lamarckism versus Darwinism. And uh, so I had heard about the inheritance of acquired traits when I was probably eight years old or so. And uh, one of the uh, stories that uh, stuck in my mind was uh, done by uh, Michael Geyer at the University of Wisconsin, uh, he, uh, I think he, he ground up uh, the eyes of rabbits and uh, injected them to produce antibodies. And 
uh, treating uh, pregnant rabbits uh, so that they uh, became immune to to the eyeball tissue. The babies were born uh, with defective eyes, and uh, uh, then he uh, cross-mated these offspring and found that the defective eyes uh, were inherited uh, as a as if they were genetic traits hmm. in subsequent generations. And uh, no one really uh, re- repeated that as far as I know, and uh, it was pretty widely accepted. Um, he was a, a very standard, uh, mostly Darwinian biologist. Uh, I think some of his articles are available on the Internet. Uh, but uh, he was uh, doing that uh, research around the same time that Paul Kammerer uh, in in uh, I think it was in Vienna uh, was experimenting with some marine invertebrates <clears throat> and, and with toads and uh, I, I think he used uh, salamanders to to uh, show that when they acquired an adaptation uh, mating them uh, the um, the offspring would uh, show traits that had been acquired by the, the parents. And uh, Paul Kammerer was uh, viciously attacked. Uh, uh, he uh, committed suicide in uh, 1926 uh, in the midst of, of a very intense attack against his midwife, Toad, uh, someone someone. Had apparently injected ink into the uh, spot that was supposed to be an inherited uh, mating pad on the toad's uh, feet. Uh, but uh, the the person who mostly uh, condemned him as a fraud, uh, William Bateson, a hardline English geneticist, uh, when when Cameron um, sent samples uh, of his specimens to England uh, several he invited uh, the, the biologists to examine them uh, several uh, well-known biologists did examine them and reported that they were convincing but William Bateson refused to go to the meeting to examine the specimens mm. but then he immediately resumed his attacks so uh, Bateson uh, really didn't want to look at the evidence because he knew it was uh, not there. And um, so maybe just backing up a little bit, maybe you could tell us why it's important uh, what the uh, debate over the theory of theories of evolution and, and, and uh, what's going on. Why are people getting so upset about this? Oh, um, it's... um uh, really, it's an essentially religious or political argument, and uh, the the whole mystique of science wants to uh, say that there's a simple objective science. You follow a certain method, you get an absolute result, and uh, if you don't get what you should get, then it has to be pseudoscience or, or fraud. But uh, the the context it's uh, 
very closely related to your social, uh, economic, political, religious uh, backgrounds and beliefs. And uh, if you look at the um, uh, Darwin, for example, um, he was a pretty um, progressive thinker in a lot of ways. He was against slavery, for example, and uh, uh, was, I think he, he went to the Unitarian Church, even though he had been, uh, uh, his father wanted to bring him up as a, as a, a Church of England uh, mainliner. But uh, he was essentially from the upper class, uh, had the, the 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 habits and way of life of the ruling class, and uh, even though, despite his progressive uh, traits, in some ways, he was really in the main line of 19th century British imperialist thinking. And uh, that that quality uh, stuck with uh, the idea of Darwinian evolution and the social Darwinists uh, uh, really developed what was an essential part of um, Darwin's thinking. Uh, and that uh, was a little later taken up by the fascists and uh, uh, eugenics uh, had a, a Darwinian uh, genetic basis, uh, uh, racial improvement, and so on. Uh, and uh, people uh, who want to uh, claim Darwin as sort of their intellectual uh, ancestor don't like to recognize that he was a pretty uh, crazy. Uh, imperialist racist uh, who he believed that even English uh, plants were better than uh, plants in other countries and uh, would displace them if, if uh, given the opportunity and just like the uh, uh, the English people and Europeans uh, would uh, finally exterminate eliminate uh, by competition uh, the the uh, what he called the intermediate races between the higher apes and and uh, uh, the civilized Europeans, but uh, he believed that even the higher apes, along with Australians and Africans, would uh, go out of existence because of the superiority of the uh, Europeans. Yeah. Uh, so the, the um, uh, when you see people in the 20th century like uh, William Jennings Bryan <laughs> denouncing evolution. Uh, they were really uh, against the whole uh, racist, fascist inclination of so many people. The eugenics movement uh, was very distasteful to, to some of the uh, traditional uh, middle and, and lower class uh, Christian thinking. So the idea of where we all came from uh, is very uh, a powerful uh, one in uh, in 
manipulating uh, people to be on uh, your side of your ideology, I suppose. It's about as inarticulate as I could possibly say that, but um, it, it seems like it's a very uh, key idea that uh, people are wrestling over to uh, win uh, the argument over whose ideology is best. Um, yeah, the the, um, the the way science is taught, um, it really doesn't uh, free itself from ideology, and and so uh, whatever the uh, ideological system uh, that, that existed around uh, uh, your say your physics professors. Uh, and their professors, uh, uh, this ideology uh, gets built into a, a belief of how how science works, uh, how the, how the brain works, even, uh, and uh, it is a philosophy of of the nature of being, the nature of the universe, uh, the creation of the universe, and all of that is is um, built into these. Uh, so-called objective uh, things that students are are taught. Uh, my my professors in uh, all of the sciences uh, uh, just didn't want to think about uh, their philosophical commitments. Uh, it was scientific, and that was that. I mean, they, they wouldn't look at any of their preconceptions. Um. Uh, yeah, the uh, the extent of, of philosophy might might have uh, been to uh, have, have read Percy Bridgman's operationalism approach to uh, saying that if you can't measure it, it isn't real. Uh, some some professors with a philosophical mind uh, saw that as their philosophical foundation yeah I think uh, you you are the reason this show is called politics and science because I think like many people uh, before I read your writings which by the way are available at raypeat.com many of your newsletters are up there uh, I I thought you know science was science and it was an objective uh, art that was practiced by uh, dedicated people with lots of integrity, and I didn't think, you know, business interests or uh, corruption, which is also business interests, or uh, vanity played any role in it. But it turns out it's it's just as uh, subject to other human, uh, to all the human vices as any other field. Um, uh, yeah, uh, early in the twentieth century, uh, you could trace the uh, uh, the. Uh, Personality of, of the academic uh, uh, culture to, to um, uh, the nineteenth-century uh, conflicts between uh, the, the, the different uh, attitudes towards uh, religion, whether it, whether the uh, old uh, pre-enlightenment religion should uh, still be. Uh, in power in government and education, or whether a, a newer 18th, 19th century uh, loosening up of religious ideas should be the rule. But it, it didn't uh, go beyond e either of those. 
and uh, the, um, the the missing thing was to uh, uh, see that there is a conflict between essentialism, which was uh, the old absolutist religious approach, uh, uh, the, the Platonic thing that, uh, for example, species uh, never change because they are are these uh, timeless identities. Uh, and uh, the conflict between that essentialist and the empirical or existentialist uh, looking at the actual historical uh, situation that you see in front of you, uh, that's that's where the real difference in in uh, interpreting science comes in. Uh, you can see it in in every field of science. Uh, uh, the um, the people, the anti-essentialists, uh, tend to be uh, on the fringe and not not fully accepted by any of the sciences. Um, for example, in in cosmology, you have the electric universe people, uh, very uh, good, coherent uh, descriptions of observed facts. Uh, against the the Big Bang uh, me- mechanistic uh, type of universe, and uh, Halton Arp, uh, uh, the astronomer who uh, made pictures of uh, uh, galaxies that were uh, visibly connected to each other, but moving <laughs> at a very different velocities, tremendously different velocities that uh, you can't have things uh, tied together that are are moving uh, at extremely different speeds, meaning that they're at extremely different distances according to the the, um, redshift Big Bang Theory. Uh, And uh, the the reason uh, that he was able to uh, see and and think about that sort of thing was that he wasn't committed to an, an essentialist uh, idea that uh, uh, every atom is the same uh, at every moment of time and at every place in the universe. Uh, if if you uh, start by observing things, uh, then you might conclude that that atoms uh, aren't the same at every time and place. Right, and uh, you've talked about him before on my show and probably others, and uh, it's, it, it's interesting that it all boils down, I guess even in the field of uh, biology, uh, to uh, your school of thought, whether you've started off, um, I think as you've explained it, with the essentialist uh, form or the empirical um, form. And you said before, I think, that Aristotle... Uh, was the founder of the empirical movement? Um, yeah, I, I think he uh, was just about a, as uh, fully developed as anyone uh, as a thinker. Uh, the uh, philosophers of the scholastic period a thousand years ago uh, did some fairly ridiculous things in the name of Aristotle uh, uh, worship uh, 
but uh, uh, people like Leibniz uh, were um, still thinking uh, in in some of Aristotle's ideas. For example, the uh, analyzing cause in into the different types of causality, including final cause uh, that has been uh, uh, the the condemnation of teleological explanations has been a big part of uh, of the um, uh, essentialist uh, mechanistic science. But uh, uh, Leibniz was able to, for example, explain the physics of optics using Aristotelian final causes in his mathematical descriptions uh, and uh, showed that it, it worked uh, just as well as as the uh, uh, mechanical uh, uh, billiard ball kind of causality. One thing hits another, and and the cause moves only in that direction rather than uh, taking into account the uh, the end condition as well as the starting condition. Uh, Leibniz wanted to see the uh, causality as as uh, a global, holistic uh, way of of existence. And I think you've pointed out before, and you can say this uh, over if you'd like, but that uh, the East or the um, Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, branch of knowledge, uh, the Russians basically went off uh, primarily with the Aristotelian uh, viewpoint, and the West somehow adopted the uh, Platonic uh, viewpoint. So we're all, I mean, I think that accounts for um, our love of modeling instead of uh, gathering empirical evidence. Uh, uh, we're currently in a, a big festival of uh, creating mathematical models and, and uh, imposing that on reality and trying to make it fit. The, the um the teleological approach uh, it uh, is is fully compatible with with the uh, evidence based historical uh, uh, fact centered approach uh, and it it just looks at at uh, generality and laws uh, in a different way that uh, doesn't uh, insist that, that they are outside of time and absolute, and uh, that things uh, can can only obey them in a, a simple and and abstract way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that it's open to uh, complexity in a way that the essentialist Platonist uh, approach isn't. And bringing that. Uh, history back to the history of evolution or the evolution of evolution um, uh, how how does this how has the thought evolutionary thought developed over the years maybe you could give us a summary of east versus west or if it's not um, uh, um, in Darwin's time uh, the um, uh, the racist approach uh, tried to explain everything in terms of uh, your existing present biology, which was explained in terms of your 
a genetic nature, and uh, it, it said that uh, how you came to be with this nature uh, was a purely random affair, and uh, that uh, the only way uh, to uh, change the the, uh, the situation generally is to select out the inferior, not to improve them, uh, because uh, things essentially aren't open to change and improvement. And so, what you what you measure is what was destined from the from the start and can never be changed. Uh, so it's it's uh, uh, seeing the future in terms of a determinate uh, defining past or worse you can delete the uh, uh, inferior species uh, but you can't improve them um, so it uh, necessarily leads to either intentional or incidental uh, genocide hmm. uh, in, in which uh, in, inferior plants, inferior people, inferior animals will go out of existence simply because uh, improvement isn't possible. Uh, so that amounts to uh, uh, saying that the future can't can be uh, uh, it can be cleaned up by eliminating uh, the uh, the random in inferiority of all of the species except uh, those in England and uh, Europe, um, but uh, it, it uh, rejects the idea of uh, improving the world. And uh, hmm. that ideology you just expressed there of you know basically getting rid of inferior people and things um, that was was that expressed before Malthus and uh, came along. Um, no, I, I think it developed uh, as as they realized that uh, uh, the moneyed class uh, had a, a better health, uh, everything better. Mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, ideology was to uh, intended to keep down uh, the uh, demands of the the working classes. So uh, Malthus uh, really just just uh, codified an ideology, and and Darwin, being a, a member of the upper class, uh, found that compatible to his way of thinking. Uh, the um, I, I see uh, uh, Vernadsky's uh, use of the Le, Le Chatelier principle that uh, if, if you uh, if a system is in, in equilibrium and you disturb the system, it uh, adjusts itself to uh, come to a new equilibrium. Vernadsky um, uh, saw uh, the cosmos as an energy system and life as a part of the system that is adjusting the equilibrium as the system is uh, energized from the outside. So he saw evolution as having uh, a direction, but 
in a way it was uh, teleological because he he showed that it would maximize the uh, movement of of atoms, uh, the uh, intensity of metabolism in organisms, and the maximization of uh, size, especially of the nervous system and the brain. Uh, uh, so the uh, the flow of energy was giving shape to his system. Uh, every part of the system was uh, part of the equilibrium, was open to change, but the change was directional in the sense of uh, improving the equilibrium and function of the whole system. I see, and that's what you mean by theological, that's purposefulness? Um, yeah, that you uh, think about the equilibrium and uh, the uh, end condition as well as the starting condition. Uh, you have to think in terms of a whole system and the interactions through time uh, so that everything has a history and uh, all of the parts and levels interact with each other uh, so that there's no part of the system that isn't interacting. So there's no place for uh, one, of, one of these uh, essential Platonic forms, uh, which Mendel, for example, wanted to uh, identify as uh, trait genes uh, so that you could have the uh, fixed species. He let the traits uh, vary by rearrangement, but the, the traits and the genes were really essential, timeless, forever fixed forms. Um, it, it, it's really a, a very pure religious imposition on yeah. on P P traits in Mendel's case. It seems like and, the, uh, oh go go ahead Ray. What was that? It just seems like the pot calling the kettle black there because you got um, him <laughs> insisting on these ideal forms, which sounds religious, but he's um, calling the people who believe in teleological or purposeful adaptation, he's calling them vitalists or uh, superstitious people. Um, uh, yeah, and, and the people who who own the schools, universities, publishing houses are uh, in a best, better position to uh, denounce others as frauds and pseudoscientists and, and so on. Uh, but actually, uh, there, there's a tremendous amount of, of uh, fake science uh, hiding among uh, the genetics uh, culture. Mm. Uh, the um, eugenics was was part of the uh, biological uh, gene culture in in the United States. Uh, the Journal of of uh, Eugenics after Hitler lost the war and was discredited, uh, they changed their name to a, a Journal of Human Genetics. But uh, the people didn't change their ideas. Uh, they still worshipped uh, the, the doctrines of Conrad Lorenz, who uh, devised Hitler's genocide uh, rationale. Yeah, that's right. Right, We've talked about that before, and he was lauded in this country as a great 
a great friendly uh, scientist. I, he was on the cover of Life magazine when I was a kid. Um, yeah, and um, uh, after uh, he got the Nobel Prize, uh, uh, my professors, every one of them, in- including the, uh, uh, the, the immigrants, uh, the Jewish, uh, Hungarian, uh, Austrian immigrants who had escaped uh, Europe in around 1939 and 1940, they were praising uh, Conrad Lorenz and the very ideas that were published uh, to justify the extermination. Mm. Uh, yeah, I looked that up after we talked last time, and he was apparently um, uh, very influential in convincing people that, uh, or the, the German public anyway, that that the Jews had to be uh, removed like a cancer from the from Europe. Uh, yeah, and, and his uh, book that was published, uh, I think it was around 1970. He used exactly the same sentences, except uh, he used a slight euphemism instead of exterminated. I think he uh, he used some milder term, but even though that was in his newest book, uh, these professors. Uh, somehow made a disconnect and uh, saw it as as their very own personal philosophy of the world. Mm. And it's a good example of how dangerous uh, science, science or influential scientists gone bad can be. It's a they have a powerful uh, podium that they speak behind from behind, and uh, they can be very influential in a terrible way. Uh, Ray, I was thinking maybe you could walk us through, uh, you know, from the, what your conception of the history of, um, evolution is from the origin of life, uh, as, maybe as you see it and, but as also as other people have proposed and, uh, bring us up to Darwin and Lamarck, uh, if that's something you're able or interested in doing. Um, uh- I um, I'm inclined to uh, uh, see Sidney Fox's approach uh, as being uh, 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 at least a good uh, uh, image or, or analog of how the the process uh, works, uh, and he was uh, he, he uh, worked in uh, Linus Pauling's lab and and was a professor in uh, regular uh, biology departments uh, supported, I think, by by NASA and uh, other government uh, funding. But uh, his uh, conclusions, his results were very clear, uh, just didn't resonate with the the genetics uh, biological uh, schools. Uh, And... Uh, his crucial uh, series of experiments he uh, he showed that the uh, the Yuri Miller uh, bubbling uh, 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 a primitive atmosphere supposedly with methane and ammonia and sparking up getting amino acids he he did variations on that uh, cooking ammonia and carbon dioxide mm. in various ways in the presence of hot rocks, uh, 
uh, and he found that uh, protein-like uh, things spontaneously polymerized, and uh, they, the arrangement was non-random. Uh, it uh, was uh, if he if he had eight or ten amino acids cooking together, uh, the proteins that spontaneously formed uh, on the surface of, of the hot rocks had a non-random arrangement uh, as if the, the amino acids were uh, interacting in such a way that they uh, chose uh, their position according to stability in some sense or rather than just randomly falling together. And uh, in a certain arrangement, uh, the, the heat with a, a very small amount of water, letting them dry out and then adding a small amount of water to this hot, uh, spontaneously formed protein, they spontaneously formed little uh, bacteria-like spheres very uniform in size uh, and the uh, the bulk of the, the protein would uh, take on this bacteria-like shape spontaneously and these shapes when new amino acids were added uh, these shapes could divide like cells or bud off part parts that would then grow up to the uh, bacteria-sized particle about a micron in diameter, I think it was, so, so they could eat and reproduce. And uh, he, uh, to, to um, a mixture of, of these uh, amino acids, proteins, and spheres, he found that adding the, uh, the bases of, of the um, nucle nucleic acids uh, uh, these two would polymerize inside the uh, uh, the little bacteria-like particles and would form uh, nucleic acid chain polymers mm. um, again which were non-randomly arranged apparently by uh, the um, the nature of the uh, the bases themselves and their context, uh, the, the nature of the non-random protein uh, structures around them. Uh, so the, the ordering process doesn't require uh, any kind of uh, input up to this stage. Uh, neither a divine uh, watchmaker uh, specifying that, that they should have this this sequence and, and shape, uh, nor uh, the uh, infinitely long spans of time uh, that the uh, the uh, crude Darwinian uh, viewpoint uh, suggested, uh, in which a, a random change uh, would uh, be selected by uh, the outside environment and. Uh, become uh, non-random uh, through a, a series of uh, adaptive uh, selections. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. And he, so he just did that by adding amino acids to hot volcanic rock, which presumably had some chemical uh, attributes yeah. to it that 
uh, made, uh, made uh, stuff happen. He, he, he simplified the procedure so that high school students could create life in an hour lab session. <laughs> There's a good science project. <laughs> wow. Make you feel like, and, make you feel like God. <laughs> and, uh, the, um, uh, that is a sort of a primitive single cell arrangement with, with, uh, nucleic acid, possible, uh, precursors, uh, to genetic material, but, uh, it, it seems like a, a very plausible, uh, way to, uh, uh, see the, the first bacteria coming into existence and uh, the, the um, underwater vents in the ocean for there's a volcano uh, uh, spewing constantly material into the uh, the deep ocean water uh, these are full of very weird types of organism and uh, the um, Looking at the, that as an analogy to Sidney Fox's experiments, uh, it suggests that you, you might get, uh, with, with a bigger lab setup, you might get something much closer to uh, presently existing organisms uh, just in a matter of minutes or hours. Um, uh, when, when you have extreme pressure, for example, and the high temperature. Yeah, those uh, underwater uh, volcanic worms are un- unbelievable. They're they're way down, uh, very low uh, in the ocean, so lots of pressure um, and intense heat coming out too. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, I think usually there's there's a lot of sulfur and carbon dioxide, uh, but uh, each each volcanic vent has its uh, chemical particularity. So, so is that theory of life uh, developing, um, gaining more acceptance? Because I would think it's very difficult for, um, for f- to go on with any other kind of theory in that case, uh, looking at that evidence. Um, over, uh, I, I mentioned it to my professors in my qualifying exam and uh, none of them had heard about it even though it was in uh, Leninger's chemistry textbook biochemistry textbook Uh, they hadn't heard about it and uh, I looked at the edition that came out in Leninger's name after he died and Fox's work had been removed so I think there was a a move away from it uh, after after Fox died, but uh, I don't think anything has come near to replacing it. You wrote in um, Generative Energy under the uh, chapter called uh, Another View of Evolution, uh, you wrote, uh, the thought that life forms might just sort of gush up out of the earth in volcanic regions makes it all seem too easy. Where might it lead people if where might it lead if people started believing that life could originate without a struggle for existence? And what do you think they're afraid of, Ray? If, if oh, uh, uh, I'm sure it's, it's that uh, 
the uh, Malthusian uh, and Darwinian hatred of, of the lower classes, uh, the, the feeling that uh, get, if they were given a chance, they would uh, displace the ruling class. Hmm. So it really comes down to politics. And um, uh, yeah, and the um, uh, the the very present uh, attitude of, of the American ruling class is that uh, uh, they have the right to kill anyone in the world uh, they choose to. Uh, no, no uh, legal process required. Just uh, choosing. Uh, names on the list is all that's necessary. That's right. Uh, now even American citizens can be taken out. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, it uh, has different justifications. Uh, it, it was a little uh, more complex in Darwin's time. Uh, the um, various justifications for, for uh, why Africans could be exterminated, uh, but uh, the general attitude towards the working class uh, has, uh, uh, from 1800 uh, right down to uh, uh, the uh, oh, more or less the present time, uh, the working class is is seen uh, as a threat. Uh, uh, class. The word class in politics, <laughs> the only time I saw an American presidential candidate use the word social class, uh, uh, that was uh, the um, the end of uh, television uh, paying attention to, to his candidacy. Uh, uh, the... the um, I forget the candidate's name, but uh, class isn't something that you can mention politically uh, uh, except to uh, denounce uh, the union advocacy as a, a class warfare. Uh, you, you can denounce class warfare, but you can't uh, denounce uh, class privilege. I have to turn my mic on. Um, they have um, embedded in their thought processes these Malthusian sort of ideas that uh, the people are dispensable, I think, um, which is an odd thing. We live in a democratic country, unless, and yet that's occurred in places like San Francisco. Um, yeah, not only dispensable, but uh, better off without them uh, okay. a lot of a lot of people are arguing that uh, birth control, uh, especially for for the poor in other countries, but uh, they don't like to say it very loud. But uh, birth control is a way of of eliminating the uh, the undesirables. So, um, s- stepping out of the political realm for a second if we go back to those uh, molecules forming from the amino acids and then forming larger uh, organizations of molecules uh, h- how do you see life developing into 
you know, actual organisms that uh, have organelles within them and, and going on from there to where we are now? Um, the um, uh, the uh, Sydney Fox particles could uh, interact with each other. And if you have a whole planet uh, full of such things, uh, the interactions, every time you get uh, something that is... Uh, a little more stable, uh, this will uh, spread horizontally. It, it isn't necessarily a, a matter of uh, descendants, but it will uh, spread its influence by contact with with its contemporaries. Uh, so things can spread much faster than than the idea of inheritance and. Uh, uh, the selection of the fittest and so on. It's a, it's, a, a resonance. I, I see, uh, the, the bacteria are now known to be able to spread uh, their resistance to uh, antibiotics horizontally so that they don't have to evolve uh, as descendants of the immune individual. But that one can give it to all of his neighbors. So you get an explosive change in populations. And if you have a, a planet uh, that's full of these uh, uh, simple things, uh, the tendency is for them to accumulate more and more of the stabilizing, activating uh, structures. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, I see it as uh, an example of, of Vernadsky's uh, uh, apply the, the right pressure and temperature conditions and so on, and you uh, the, the system spontaneously moves in that direction as being driven by the environmental conditions. Hmm. Um, uh, so uh, I think it's, it's a very quick process to come to uh, uh, the single cell that's extremely well endowed with the so-called genetic material, uh, the, uh, the nucleic acids, uh, just by following uh, the Vernadsky uh, the uh, principle uh, will, will tend to complexify. So you get, uh, instead of simple bacteria, you get uh, very well endowed um, things like amoebas, uh, very um, complex uh, single-celled organisms. And uh, I think it was James Shapiro uh, who talked about the, uh, the bacterial self-engineering of their genetic uh, material. Um, I, I think he was... Uh, Maybe the first one that, that proposed that uh, the um, movement from a, a protozoan uh, type organism to a multicellular organism could also be almost spontaneous, uh, in, in which the uh, this over endowed single cell uh, finds uh, a situation in which. Uh, Colonizing, joining with its neighbors, uh, uh, leads it to a new new level of of uh, 
metabolism and stability. Hmm. Uh, so I, I think the, uh, the Vernadsky principle applies uh, not only the, the move from the, uh, the protein to the, the fox particle and the fox particle mm-hmm. to the full bacterium and the bacterium to the amoeba, but also from the amoeba to the multi-celled organism. Wow. And uh, Vernadsky was a Russian geophysicist? Is that what his official title um, was? Uh, yeah. He uh, had the theory of how soil was formed, and uh, uh, that led him to uh, a new view of cosmology and mm. and of organisms and so on. Uh, he uh, didn't draw any lines, and so uh, in trying to understand the soil, he had to understand the history of the organisms that made it and the history of the cosmos and the energy supplies that uh, supported those organisms interacting and making making their environment. Yeah. Oh, go on, please. Well, just that uh, the organisms make their environment in a sense, and then they choose the way they will be in the environment, so they they make themselves as well as the environment. Mm. But it's the whole system that uh, is uh, making the whole thing possible. Yeah, that's... That's I, I really like that idea, and I, I um, and uh, we just had a question come in about what you were saying earlier. Uh, this is from Duncan, and it's uh, it, the question goes like this: It's by email, which uh, people can email politics and science at madriver dot com if they want to send an email in. Uh, politics and science at madriver dot com, and Duncan says, "Is it possible to fix the class warfare problem? If so, then how? Are there?" Any ways to do it nonviolently? What are the best materials to study for propaganda and revolution? Will the class warfare problem always exist, considering inherent human nature? Um, I, I think it's a, a metaphysical problem, essentially, in which uh, uh, I think it was about uh, eighteen. 70 or 1875 that William Morris said uh, where will this culture end uh, in a, with a counting house on top of a cinder pile mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that was uh, very, very close to, uh, to the way uh, the, um, the, the climate change seems to be leading us uh, ashes and money. Yeah, and that's all that'll be left with a few cockroaches. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a basically a metaphysical thing that if you see uh, the mechanical uh, commitment to the past leading its way into the future, you end up with that cinder pile, uh, and uh, you. To avoid that, you have to change your metaphysics to the Leibnizian or Aristotelian uh, view in which 
the final cause has to be taken into account. Uh, Leibniz and uh, um, Teilhard de Chardin, uh, Teilhard de Chardin uh, attended a Vernadsky lecture hmm. on the Noosphere, and uh, uh, Chardin uh, was an uh, archaeologist, anthropologist, uh, priest, uh, and he saw uh, this end point as a, a God consciousness, and that was uh, how uh, Leibniz expressed it, that the, the, the end condition was uh, 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 moving, moving towards, in, in some way, a, a, a fuller expression of godness. Mm. Uh, but however you express the end conditions, uh, Bernadsky didn't uh, have have that sort of an end in mind. Uh, he he described it as as a, a, a universe of consciousness, the noosphere, uh, in, in which uh, knowledge and and awareness uh, became the the governing principle, but um, however you see the end condition, I think you have to start thinking in terms of final causes and get back to Aristotle at least. And once you take that into account that maybe it isn't so good to reduce the planet to ashes and money, uh, then maybe you can work on solutions which uh, part of the solution is to uh, stop thinking about uh, class superiority and racial superiority and so on. And when you say the end conditions, does that mean you have to imagine what, how you'd like the world to be and then intend to make it that way? Um, yeah. yeah. The, um, the final cause was... Uh, the purpose where where you mean to go, and uh, by uh, denouncing teleological thinking at any level, uh, they said that uh, the bottom line is uh, that you want to make your money, and uh, you don't care what it costs the other person or the environment. Uh, the, the strict one uh, one directional idea of causality uh, you you work on uh, what's local and profitable at, at, and uh, disregard uh, the outcome because uh, according to that metaphysics uh, the the outcome is always a matter of degradation the elimination of, of what was unsuccessful. All right. Um, and again, uh, you're listening to WMRW LP Warren. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Raymond Pete. He's a has a PhD in biology and specializes in physiology. And we're talking around the subject of evolution and why uh, how you think about that is important. Let's see. Um, I guess uh, on, on that on that uh, sure. line of thinking, uh, 
uh, anthropology is uh, uh, an area that is uh, very closely connected to evolutionary thinking and uh, despite the fact that the uh, academic anthropology in the U.S. has uh, been very strongly guided by the CIA recruiting anthropologists as uh, agents to uh, learn how to control the inferior masses of the world uh, despite that pretty much takeover by the government uh, there are, are these evolutionary lines of thinking in anthropology that uh, are uh, very promising uh, the Margaret Mead uh, approach that uh, cultures don't have to be static that the people make the culture and so they can change the culture mm. and uh, her professor uh, Franz Boas at Columbia uh, was uh, a, a very he thought of himself as a Darwinist and an evolution-oriented thinker, but when he actually studied the facts, he was showing that the environment, rather than the genes, govern even the person's biology, not only their language and thoughts and culture, and, and uh, ordinary uh, everyday behavior, but even the shape of their organism. Uh, he measured the heads of Europeans who had uh, moved either to New York or Puerto Rico and uh, found that uh, their first-generation offspring of these immigrants had heads shaped more like New Yorkers or Puerto Ricans than like the, the European parents. Huh. Well, that's bizarre. Uh, I had no idea New York was so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, even though he thought of himself as a Darwinist, it showed that the powerful importance of, of the, the material and the social culture that the people move into mm. uh, shaping even the, the organism, the body. Um, here's another question. And I'll just take this as it comes. Uh, it's also from Duncan. Is empathy evolutionary, evolutionarily advantageous? Um, I, I see empathy as uh, the, the um, universal. Uh, principle of of, uh, of, of substance uh, the absolute opposite of the essentialist uh, view of reality the essentialist uh, takes takes a uh, if you break the world up into Leibnizian monads uh, the essentialist says that the monads are closed the uh, existence of empathy uh, implies that each uh, each unit of existence is open and uh, interacting 
with its environment. Uh, so I see empathy as, as a, expressible in physical terms, um, such as uh, resonance. Uh, in in the case of uh, empathizing with with a person or animal, uh, you tune your nervous system so that it, in effect, is resonating with the uh, conditions of the other's uh, nervous system. Uh, mm. But I, I see it as a, something that uh, is explaining uh, why the amino acids take on a non-random arrangement in Fox's molecules, uh, why certain structures are stable that happen to look like uh, uh, small bacteria. Um, uh, resonance is a, a stabilizer uh, in on the atomic level, uh, the chemical, uh, uh, cellular level, and so on, as well as the uh, uh, organismic uh, level resonance of the nervous systems. Hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. And culturally, too, in the form of music and, and uh, ideas ideas that resonate. Um, yeah, I, I, and uh, uh, Luca Turin, uh, mm-hmm. uh, there are some lectures by him. Uh, he's a perfume expert, but uh, <laughs> his theory of uh, uh, psychoactive drugs or of... Uh, uh, hormones and so on uh, as well as odor molecules uh, is uh, based on the idea that it's an electronic resonance uh, between the molecule and the cell uh, that accounts for the specificity. Um, He gives many examples in which uh, molecules that resonate uh, the same have the same smell or the same biological effect, uh, despite having a different shape, wow. or that molecules with the same shape but a different uh, vibratory frequency uh, uh, are not experienced, don't have the same biological effect. Hmm. Well, where did you run into him, Ray? Oh, uh, Reading about uh, perfume, I guess. Okay. Uh, uh, the Science News around 1951 had an article about uh, the person who originated that theory, hmm. or actually a, a, the, a follower of the person who originated the theory. It started in the 1930s, but I saw this article in Science News in the early 50s. Huh. Uh, and uh, Luca Turin is uh, uh, updating those those lines of thinking so, so I had a basic question about evolution are, are we basically we're made out of ma- the material the world's made out of our bodies and everything on the earth and so are we basically just a, a, an evolution of the actual material that we're made out of the elements of the earth um, or is it just a, a building of complexity of those materials um, I, yeah, I, I think the, um, the, um, resonant properties are, are, um, 
the, the, the properties that matter to us, um, and, and so we can uh, substitute sometimes molecules uh, that aren't exactly the same uh, in, in form or substance, but that have the same uh, electronic way of interacting with us, the same resonance. Uh, and, uh, for example, I would say methylene blue has this remarkable range of uh, biologically valuable functions, even though it's something that uh, we've never evolved with, uh, but it has uh, an electronic uh, property that fits in and uh, stabilizes or enriches our system. Okay, at this point, uh, we had a Skype fallout. Uh, the distortion got so bad, Ray couldn't hear me, and I had to call him back. So it goes away uh, pretty quickly. But but at any rate, I apologize for yet another audio problem. Hello? Can you hear me now? Oh, it's better, but uh, still pretty scrunchy. Still scrunchy. Gosh, I don't know what's going on. Uh, but, but I can understand you now. Okay. Um, you're, we're you had said something about methylene blue was last. That's correct, and I've heard you say that it's a uh, supplement you can take that will actually improve your cell- cellular energy function. Um, yeah, yeah. Even though it's it's a weird molecule, it it happens to electronically fit in, uh, even though there's there's no structural analog that's exactly like it. Hmm. And do you think um, using materials like that is uh, finding them out of the environment and uh, using them because we f- we find some benefit from them? Is that part of our evolutionary uh, and probably all life's evolutionary process? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, I think things analogous to that uh, have happened at, at different stages that uh, something that is available and increases our our efficiency uh, give us sort of a a stepping stone to uh, do something else mm-hmm. I know there was a book uh, I think it was called Food of the Gods I could have that wrong but it was about uh, it was postulating that uh, our consciousness did a radical uh, shift and improvement uh, sometime in ancient history when we discovered psilocybin mushrooms that went along with the with the uh, cow plops that came out of following cow herds around the world or Africa, and I was wondering if what you thought about the evolution of consciousness. Uh, um, I think um, uh, things such as uh, uh, the, the um, amount of carbon dioxide in the air, uh, the amount of of uh, particular nutrients in the diet, the balance of amino acids. Uh, and uh, uh, such uh, very widely available things uh, are uh, the main powers of uh, increasing consciousness. But uh, consciousness, uh, I, I see, is uh, uh, simply uh, one side of, of the metabolic interactive process uh, so that anything that increases our uh, quality of metabolism is um, increasing 
the uh, our ability to resonate with uh, more more complex and extensive systems mm. so and uh, the uh, things like like the mushrooms uh, act as a lubricant that uh, the the organism might have a, a certain amount of energy available and with just a little lubricant it it might uh, find that it can slide up to a new uh, metabolic level hmm. sort of a uh, a uh, a lubricant that'll help you have epiphanies about the, the life around you um uh, yeah and and um, ways of uh, new ways of interacting uh, for example uh, i think the uh, there's a, a tendency of of the offspring of the ruling class to uh, uh, not not have the appetite for the the crazy things <laughs> that their parents and grandparents were committed to mhm i see so they've had a change of consciousness um, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, there are, there are bits of that yeah. happening over the last uh, forty, fifty years. Uh, one of the things that you've written about uh, a lot is uh, Pavlov and Anokin, the uh, Russian uh, behavioral scientist. Is that what you call them? And and one of the things uh, that you put down, uh, which I thought was interesting, was uh, Pavlov's uh, uh, writing about. Um, that life has a biological urge for freedom, and I was wondering if 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 you believe that, and if that's a, a powerful evolutionary force. Um, uh, yeah, the, I I think it fits into the idea of the noosphere. Um, uh, the um, Pavlov's reflex of freedom was. Uh, also, the exploratory uh, reflex, or the, the "what is it" reflex, uh, always uh, wanting to uh, find out more, and uh, the uh, when when the uh, culture or or planet evolves uh, beyond the uh, urge to accumulate and gain power and so on. To the uh, conscious noosphere level, uh, then uh, the um, that reflex, I think, uh, will uh, be fully activated, and uh, everything will become a question and an opportunity for for discovery. Uh, so that instead of being uh, an endpoint. It, it becomes uh, uh, an opportunity for uh, creation of new levels of uh, being. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's I like that. And um, once you you also wrote that uh, health can be seen as the coordination of the levels of evolution. And I know you do a lot of uh, writing about. Uh, health, because uh, that's a, a good window, I think you've said, for to uh, connect with people. And 
uh, I thought that was very interesting. Maybe you could talk about the levels of evolution and uh, what those are and why coordinating those uh, equals good health. Um, I don't remember what I had in mind. Uh, okay. Uh, the, um, uh, maybe, maybe something like Mas- Maslow's uh, uh, steps of, of development, uh, security, uh, the need for uh, enough food, uh, uh, the need for uh, uh, social interactions uh, and uh, uh, mental stimulation, and uh, finally um, Maslow's self-actualization. Uh, uh, it, it might be analogous to the uh, uh, freedom reflex the opportunity to uh, live for creative uh, action. Hmm. And who was Maslow, Ray? Oh, Abraham Maslow, mm-hmm. uh, the um, Brandeis psychologist, uh, one of the, along with uh, Carl Rogers, oh. uh, he was the uh, uh, great uh, step forward in psychology beyond uh, Freudianism and behaviorism to um, uh, humanistic psychology. Mm-hmm. Bringing us back to empathy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Carl Rogers uh, uh, was uh, uh, actually a, a sophisticated uh, thinker with a phenomenological approach to uh, science. And, and uh, his uh, understanding of of therapy was that it's uh, the interactive attempt of the therapist to listen to and understand the client which is therapeutic that it's the resonance in itself which is therapeutic Hmm. yeah that's uh that makes that makes a lot of sense um Okay, we've got a question taking you back to the methylene blue. It came in by email. It's from Duncan again. Considering higher level energy levels, have you tried methylene blue? And if so, how does it feel versus progesterone or caffeine? Were there any higher energy thinking abilities evident? Um, I've only been using it transdermally, and uh, uh, I, that's my approach to uh Understanding new chemicals is to uh, find what the, the smallest amount does, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, work up uh, in stages. And uh, uh, so far, uh, I see it as as um, just a good anti-inflammatory. Okay, so we'll wait for a further report as that progresses. Uh, were you going to say something else, Ray? Uh, no, uh, okay. but uh, quite a few people are uh, uh, having uh, very powerful antidepressant effects from it with just one milligram a day. Hmm. And, but uh, I think it's probably uh, going to be effective at doses analogous to thyroid hormone, uh, 20, 30, 40 milli- micrograms per day, I think, might be the op- optimal dose of methylene blue okay all right 
take something blue to get rid of your blues. It's it sounds like it's um like you said it's it's raising your if it works it's raising your energy levels and that's um, uh, a common yeah, theme. It, it's known that it um, can bypass uh, mitochondrial defects, and I think that's a big part of of why it can cure very serious depression at, at such a small dose. Hmm. Wow. That's impressive. Um, I have some... Well, I wanted to talk a little bit. We have some time left, and I wanted to talk about uh, Russian science. I, I know you've always been interested in that, and I was curious about your experience personally going to Russia. I know you went there one summer to talk to scientists, and they were all out at their, uh, what do they call them, dachas? Dachas, <laughs> yeah. Dachas. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering if if you speak Russian. Have you learned Russian? Uh, no, I, okay. I learned to read it. But, uh, oh, you did? I, I hoped that I would get to practice it, but I would go up to someone on the street and uh, ask them uh, directions or something in Russian, and every one of them said, I'm sorry, I don't speak Russian. <laughs> <laughs> they were all from uh, the uh, other republics on vacation in Moscow. I see. <laughs> nice try, though. <laughs> um, did you meet any scientists when you went? Were any? I, yeah, I, I went to uh, Lysenko's, uh, the place where he was working, mm-hmm. and um, he. It happened that I was there on the day he wasn't. But uh, one of his assistants took me around, and uh, uh, Yuri Holodov uh, was uh, uh, the um, person studying uh, uh, magnetobiology, he called it, uh, as opposed to biomagnetism, um, the influence of magnetic fields on the nervous system in particular. Hmm. Uh, uh, he, uh, we, we just... Uh, uh, this person, I guess, called him up, and uh, we went over uh, on on the, the bus and uh, dropped in without warning. And uh, he uh, took took the time to uh, uh, talk to us, answer our questions, and uh, his first question were uh, was, uh, "What are you studying and where?" And I said, "I plan to." Uh, enroll at the University of Oregon in nerve biology, and he said, oh, <laughs> uh, are you going to work with, and named a, a professor who just that quarter had left the university, but uh, he was up up to uh, the, the present year, at least, in wow. uh, who, who who was doing who was nerve research in the universities. He you know, he didn't know in advance that I was from Oregon, but uh, just instantly yeah. uh, knew who the professors would be at Oregon. Wow! And were you were you speaking Russian with him? I forget. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I think we might have been doing a a mash of languages. Uh, yeah. And so, when when you uh, look into uh, Russian literature, you're reading it in the original form, is that right? Yeah, because it does seem like you have an awfully uh, uh, in-depth uh, perception of what they're talking about, and 
Oh, oh yeah, the, the uh, translations <laughs> are sometimes very obviously ideological. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just that, that's a great example of fraud in uh, American science is how they translated uh, Soviet things. Um, Israel uh, did a lot of good translations of uh, oh. Russian research. Mm. Well, that's good. So, so some of the uh, some of the literature, scientific literature, is available th- through Israeli publishers. Uh, yeah, I see. And maybe since uh, uh, Trofim Lysenko ties in with the uh, subject matter of uh, of um, evolution. Maybe you could outline for us what that was all about and what primarily the Russian stance on evolution versus the Western stance. Um, Lysenko uh, never was the uh, czar of genetics. Uh, Even at the height of his power under uh, uh, Stalin, uh, he was always... uh, criticizing the university genetics hmm. people. Uh, he was the basically the, uh, uh, like the state college research uh, stations, the, the um, mm-hmm. crop improvement stations, uh, where a lot of good science is done out in the agricultural uh, stations, uh, not the universities. And uh, the universities... Uh, stayed Western genetics oriented right through Stalin. Hmm. Um, so we've been given a, a really false history of what Lysenko was doing. Um, and um, his his um, research, uh, uh, I think it was um, Lewinton, uh, an American Marxist biologist who um, examined the uh, actual grain production records in the years under uh, Lysenko's influence, and they were actually increasing uh, grain production steadily when they were applying hmm. uh, the work he did at the field research stations. Uh, and uh, the, the ge- university genetics departments weren't producing anything of value, but what what they did was to take the seeds he developed out in these practical research farm stations, take them to um, England, give them to the uh, anti-Soviet genetics people to work with. Uh, uh, that uh, the, the government uh, learned that he was giving away the, the valuable seeds that Lysenko had developed uh, that was where the uh, uh, prosecuting them for um, working with the enemy came in. Ah, wow. It was actually concrete events of uh, giving stuff away uh, without permission uh, rather than any ideological uh, punishment. And Lysenko was always... Um Ridiculed in the West, wasn't he? His his theories, and maybe you could—is that because he was advocating the inheritability of acquired characteristics? Um, uh, yeah, he uh, emphasized the um, predominant 
of the cytoplasm and uh, the the nucleus was uh, a reservoir of useful stuff but the the changes and the adaptation uh, was being done by the um, the cell as a whole but especially being led by the cytoplasm and the adaptation of the organism involved uh, changes in the uh, the organization of the cytoplasm and uh, people in the west were uh, working on similar things with cloning experiments for example where mm-hmm. a nucleus would be removed or uh, replaced by a nucleus from a different species or even a different phylum and uh, uh, the uh, the cell would develop if it was in an em- embryo uh, uh, the embryo would develop according to the rules of the cytoplasm the genus or phylum that the uh, cytoplasm came from would govern the, the shape of the organism hmm. um, even even with a very re- remotely uh, related uh, nucleus but the, uh, oh go ahead uh, and the um, the cloning experiments in which uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, a nucleus, say from a, a skin cell, would be put in into a frog's egg. Uh, frogs were the first things cloned because they have such big eggs and are easy to do surgery on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, in the 1960s. Uh, Western biologists were working on the uh, changes happening in the cytoplasm that would be inherited, uh, like uh, with a paramecium, if you uh, take a bit of the surface, turn it around uh, so that the cilia beat in reverse. Uh, As that organism has descendants, they all uh, have the uh, reversed cilia in, in that spot, hmm. uh, showing that uh, you do have a very clear inheritance of, of uh, things that happen to the cytoplasm, uh, which is all that uh, was essential in, in Lysenko's thinking. And uh, the idea of stress increasing variability simultaneous or maybe five or ten years after uh, Lee Senko was writing about it, Barbara McClintock was finding the same things in her work with corn, that stress increased the variability and adaptability of, of the organism, uh, changing the, the chromosomes. Uh, hmm. So uh, how is it that they were so intent on making fun of uh, Lysenko and uh, basically they they put him in the same boat as uh, Lamarck, who we've hardly talked about in this whole show, which was going to be about Lamarck, but we said we'd be talking around him, so Um, we successfully uh, avoided him. uh, Barbara McClintock came so close to Lysenko and Lamarck in... uh, uh, showing that that stress 
change his heredity. And uh, she was uh, sort of hostily ignored by the profession uh, for uh, 40 years, I guess it was. And then with genetic engineering, uh, when people wanted to uh, patent uh, new new genes, uh, they realized that it would be good to have uh, some actual scientific precedent uh, to make them sound nicer, that they weren't weren't just uh, uh, changing DNA to uh, uh, make a, a profitable product. Uh, they resurrected uh, from obscurity uh, Barbara McClintock's work and gave her uh, the, uh, I think, first the MacArthur Prize, then the Nobel Prize. Hmm. But um, 40 years later, roughly, than, than her uh, actual discoveries. Wow. And um, let's see, I should probably move on to some of the questions from uh, other people. We're getting got about 20 minutes left. Um, uh, one other uh, line of things, evidence related to... Uh, uh, Lysenko and, and McClintock and uh, genes. Uh, you remember the uh, uh, Darwin uh, proposed that uh, since he knew that farmers could improve their their uh, animals and, and plants by selection, uh, he he wanted to um, say something about acquired traits being passed on, and he had the idea of gemules or pen genes, uh, which were the idea that uh, something that the organism acquired uh, through experience uh, in a particular organ or all of the organs, uh, that these uh, were uh, shed from the particular part of the organism and reached the uh, gonads to be taken up in the germline as uh, the um, evidence or the the um, expression of the environmental modification that had happened to the organism, uh, uh, and that idea was uh, the um, it was too Lamarckian uh, for anyone uh, up until the Senko's time uh, that something could pass from the cytoplasm. Or, or the cell mm -hmm. uh, of the body and be taken up in the germline to be passed on. Uh, uh, that was where Darwin and Lysenko and, Lark and uh, uh, Lamarck were all uh, put down totally. But in the last uh, 10 or 20 years, well, it, it really uh, can be traced back to a North Korean uh, Bangan Kim, uh, who in the 60s uh, published his work, which was uh, uh, repeated only, as far as I know, by two Japanese. Uh, he uh, showed that there were particles carrying nucleic acids uh, through a lymphatic-like uh, conductive system that he thought uh, accounted for how uh, 
acupuncture uh, could cause changes in other parts of the organism. Um, he thought these particles of nucleic acid were being uh, transmitted along the meridians of acupuncture. Uh, but he demonstrated uh, mi microscopically uh, these particles and their chemical uh, RNA content, for example. Mm -hmm. But only in the last 10 or 15 years, um, people have bothered to look at uh, the uh, particles in the plasma or serum uh, it, under a, an electron microscope, it, it looked just sort of like dust, uh, undefined, very small particles, uh, smaller than bacteria, like a tenth the diameter of even a small bacterium. Uh, these little particles, just billions of them everywhere. You can find them in, in the blood, the lymph, saliva, uh, urine, Every every body fluid is full of these little particles, and they are now known uh, to, in fact, carry RNA, proteins, fats, and even DNA. And it has been demonstrated that the DNA carried in these particles uh, can be incorporated into the germ cells and transmitted. So, uh, basically. Uh, Darwin's gemmules and now are called uh, exosomes or microvesicles or ectosomes by different people. Wow. So he may have been a, 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 a classist and racist, but he was pretty far-seeing. Yeah, he, he was uh, an intelligent observer and sometimes a very imaginative thinker. And he had many of this, I mean, he did not rule out many of the mechanisms that Lamarck talked about for passing on acquired characteristics. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Um, in his um, uh, Descent of Man, I think it was, he, in the end, one of the introductions to that, he said, uh, my opponents are saying that uh, I'm all about uh, the... Uh, natural selection, but uh, in fact, here are the points that I believe in, and he listed several uh, inheritance of acquired traits and uh, sexual selection and uh, uh, several points other than natural selection. Hmm. And uh, Samuel Butler uh, in two or three books in the um, well, Darwin was still alive, was uh, denouncing Darwin for um, uh, neglecting to acknowledge his commit his debt to uh, both Lamarck and his grandfather Erasmus Darwin. Um, and I think Samuel Butler was uh, very accurate in uh, saying that that Darwin was just too cowardly to. Uh, be very public about his Lamarckism. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing it carried such a stigma and still does. I mean, people are still laughing at Lamarck, even though he seems he was in a large part correct about how things work. Um, how, how, I have a quick question, or maybe I hope we're 
that it's quick because we don't have much time. But uh, what was Blake? I know you're a, a great scholar of um, William Blake, uh, who lived, I think, was a contemporary with Erasmus Darwin. And what was Blake's opinion on evolution? And he didn't use any such language, but he obviously had read Erasmus Darwin's Zoonomia and uh, Emanuel Swedenborg's physiology, mm-hmm. uh, uh, things that uh, ordinary uh, embryology and anatomy didn't recognize until the 20th century. Uh, Blake, I'm sure, got them uh, from uh, knowing Swedenborg's writing. Swedenborg lived in London uh, uh, in his old age, and uh, uh, Swedenborg had uh, identified uh, the um, fine anatomy of the nervous system and its development, and uh, uh, seeing the the nature of the developing embryo uh, combined with uh, uh, Erasmus Darwin's picture of all organisms developing from a a single uh, simple fiber, he said, Mm -hmm. uh, or uh, in in one case he said everything from from a seashell or a sea organism, but Mm -hmm. uh, a simple cell as the origin of all organisms was uh, a current idea uh, in London of the uh, 1790s. Wow, that's pretty modern. You, you, you can see those anatomical, uh, flexible ideas in many places in Blake. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a question from Prana Rupa. Uh, let's see. Uh, see. Would you be willing to speculate, speculate about future evolutionary expressions, both at the level of the biosphere as a whole and in relation to optimizing our own potentialities? Could you hear um, that? Yeah. I, I think uh, the um, uh, environment, I, th- I think the increasing carbon dioxide is going in the right direction. And I think it increases adaptability. And so the I don't think we have to worry about carbon dioxide as contributing to extinction of species. I think it increases everyone's flexibility and adaptability. And uh, I think the tendency of of this increasing carbon dioxide is to uh, support uh, the process of cephalization. And uh, so I think the direction will be... uh, uh, bigger brains, uh, 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 further development of of uh, a, a lot of the abilities, uh, uh, especially the imaginative uh, types of uh, mental processes. Hmm. And a question from Todd uh, Mudd. He says, are evolutionary steps really spontaneous? Do they happen in a single generation, or are the changes gradual? Does an energy charge build up and then suddenly make a change? With the next physical changes in humans to bigger heads, 
Higher met- metabolic rates or something else? Okay, there's a similar question there. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's it's happening intermittently. Uh, uh, one woman will have a remarkably uh, advantageous pregnancy, and and uh, uh, will be sort of the uh, uh, the forerunner of a trend. Uh, it it can happen uh, immediately in in one lucky group of organisms and uh, uh, more more um, widespread in the, the whole population uh, when the, when the whole situation is more fortunate hmm. all right um and here's another question. I'm not sure if I have it right, but would another evolutionary step have something to do with with being aware of sensory processes? And would it have something to do with thinking in images rather than words? Um, yeah, the the essentialist metaphysics, I think, is uh, literally holding back physiological functioning and evolution. Uh, the the, uh, the organism is impaired when it gets stuck in these verbal formulas uh, which are uh, the the nature of the essentialist metaphysics is that the brain loses energy uh, and works on a low energy symbolic uh, set of interactions and when the uh, in Anokin's uh, terms uh, uh, from from a perspective uh, analogous to Luca Turin's, from this perspective, there's a conductive quality to the fluids of the brain and the cells, uh, which uh, allows uh, a holistic, uh, more encompassing kind of functioning, so that any uh, concrete uh, thought or image. Uh, brings with it an interpretive context so that you see the meaning in all of its expanded uh, qualities rather than uh, a symbolic formulation uh, with links to other symbolic formulations. Mm-hmm. What you see is is like a simultaneous picture in three dimensions and moving mm. uh, for, so that uh, the thought... Uh, when it, when the brain is properly energized, uh, uh, and and Luca Turin, uh, as dimensions of, of how this is described, um, when the brain is properly energized, it, it forms these image complexes, which, which bring with, with them the interpretive context, so, so that the, the sense of meaning is, uh, Always part part of uh, understanding uh, the particular image. Hmm. That's fascinating. So the um, the images, and especially a moving image, is such a powerful um, method of communication. Um, you mentioned a, a talk by somebody called "No More Secrets," and is that possibly where we're evolving to to uh, tele- telepathy? Um. I think, yeah, he he makes some good arguments. Michael Persinger, thank you, yes, that person. Uh, 
and uh, he um, experimented with stimulating the brain in different ways and and getting uh, what he called the God consciousness. Uh, uh, I, I think that sense of uh, overwhelming meaning, uh, that, that's just a, a natural brain process when it's properly energized so that uh, when you think of an atom, you can't think of an abstract atom out out of time. Mm-hmm. Every atom has its uh, its own history. Uh, mm. Imagine that family tree. <laughs> <laughs> I can hardly keep track of my own. <laughs> wow. Well, Ray, I'm afraid we're out of time. I hate to do it, but... Uh, that was uh, almost two hours uh, with Dr. Raymond Pete. Uh, thank you so much for offering us your time and, and uh, knowledge today here on WMRW. And uh, if all goes well, we'll talk to you again next week um, about uh, physiological implications of uh, acid-base, molecular electric charges, and reduction oxidation and their relation to each other. And uh, that's a subject I've always gotten very confused by, so I'm looking forward to uh, maybe getting less confused okay okay thanks so much ray okay thank you okay goodbye and you are listening to wmrw lp warren and we're about to go to the news here i want to thank everybody who uh helped participate uh and make the show more interesting this is an archive edition of a repeat interview done on the third, no, the fourth of March, two thousand fifteen, uh, with Ray. Uh, the subject ostensibly was about evolution, and uh, if you'd like more information, you can go to raypeat.com, where he has many, many articles uh, there for you to read for free. Uh, I've been John Barkhausen. I still am. I hope, and um, hopefully. Um, do a few more interviews with Ray. So uh, thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible. I apologize f- for the fact that there's some distortion. Obviously, I had some technical challenges during the show, which hopefully I'll conquer <laughs> next time around. All right, thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>